My name is Martin Bowles. Uh, I'm 65. I've been working at Heidelberg University Central Institute of Mental Health for more than 20 years. I was leading a large group mainly dedicated on research on borderline personality disorder. Um, so we covered up a, a broad field of research from cells to animals to social sciences and um, um, the focus was mainly in the beginning on understanding the mechanism of emotion dysregulation, then more on the mechanism of dysfunctional social interactions, and now mainly focusing on what we call more the um, yeah, identity problems, what borderline patients often have. And one part of, the, uh, of our research focused on uh, the understanding, the better understanding and also treatment developing for clients who suffered from co-occurring PTSD. As you might know, we have about 50% of treatment seeking clients with borderline personality disorder. They also suffer or show all the criteria for uh, PTSD, mostly uh, related to childhood sexual abuse. And um, when we started, there was no treatment for this group of people. Um, and now, <laughs> after 15 years of work, we I can a little bit proudly, with a lot of help of a lot of friends and also with a lot of help of Marshall Linehan, I can say that we now have a treatment on the table, which is uh, has been proven that it's evidence-based, that it works, and it works quite strongly. And so we can now start to distribute the treatment. So this is where we are. My perspective from the UK is that there's very little research put into the personality disorders field. And a very small part of that research funding is cross-disciplinary, brings together people from the psychological sciences and the biological sciences and the social sciences. It sounds like what you've developed here is that, that model where you've brought together this cross-disciplinary group of professionals to really think um, in a very joined up way about the problems that affect people with borderline personality disorder and, as you say, co-occurring complex PTSD. So before we get into the conversation, I just want you to say a little bit more about that group and that, that life's work. Why have you done that? How did that come about? Thank you for asking this. Yeah, I think this is a little bit unique. We were very happy that we could uh, achieve this. Uh, that's my personal background is that I'm trained uh, as, a, as a scientist. I've done uh, uh, basic immunology and uh, in the 90s before I started my career as a psychiatrist. So uh, let's say I know a little bit about science. And the other thing is, of course, I'm, I'm from my back of my heart, I'm a clinician. And for that, it, I was always completely convinced that you uh, only can improve the, the clinical work if you really uh, use basic uh, science, real science, <laughs> um, to uh, decover and understand the mechanisms. And um, then, of course, uh, it's a long way. So I had to start to do my own uh, neurobiological research first. So we, we've done, we've done uh, neuroimaging studies and um, 
psychophysiological studies in this group and uh, of patients, and we did also um, um, in the same same uh, situation we did also a large treatment study, and this enabled us then in the long run to uh, apply for a specific format. We have a research format in the German Research Foundation which um, is something like a research program, which enables us exactly what you said, to uh, bring together uh, specialists from different fields, let's animal researchers, geneticists, um, neuroimage in people, and also health economic people and so on, to set up a group of people, all focused on what we were focusing that those times is uh, um, basic mechanism in emotion regulation uh, in borderlands. And we had a research group. This was a funding for eight years. And uh, we had a yeah, group of about 20 uh, people, scientists coming from all the fields. And we just had to bring them together. And one of the important things is what I always do is that I try at least the younger scientists, they have to work with uh, the client a little bit. So everybody has to treat one client at least. Even if she's an animal researcher, of course, under strong supervision, uh, supervision and uh, and training, so that these uh, scientists know the clients, and they, they, in order that they can develop their own perspectives and adapt it to the needs of the clients and understand the unsolved problems, and um, and this is a very nice situation at the Central Institute of Mental Health. This is the spirit of the whole uh, institute that uh, that we really try to closely link the, the the basic researchers with the clinicians and also our basic researchers see the clients, talk with them and uh, and discuss their research the, the, um, the results with the clients. And we have in Germany a very strong movement. Uh, when I say clients, it means uh, patients with uh, experienced um, with ex-borderline patients or borderline patients who share, uh, uh, and not only on a, on a let's say a so-called advisory board, but they are very closely involved in in all our developments. So it's, and I think this is one thing which I could say is a little bit of strength of our group uh, that we, yeah. We closely work with uh, with patients who are experienced, clients who are experienced at dis discussing all the details and the research. So that's the situation. And um, I think it pushed the field forward, yes. Um, um, yeah, <laughs> meanwhile, it's a little bit complicated to keep everything in, in, in one, one, one head. So I, it's complicated to oversee all the publications and to bring all things together. And And then the problem is often that I have the feeling that we are a little bit a little bit ahead, so it's complicated to communicate all the things now and uh, let's say uh, tell it the DBT community when we're moving forward uh, and uh, reaching other goals. And uh, so it's, uh, yeah, communication now is a problem. <laughs> implementation is always a whole different set. Yeah, communication, implementation, utilization. And you see DBT is... Uh, a very successful treatment and uh, it's also a market and it's all over and uh, it has some yeah i'd say say continuity and uh, and now bringing new aspects in it and changing the things is not the easiest part so let's get on to the treatment in a second but first of all i want to talk a bit about what causes these conditions bpd complex ptsd and also the the interplay. Um, you said that fifty percent of treatment seeking 
people with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis also have complex PTSD. So tell us a bit about, in your view, what causes these conditions? And I'm particularly interested in what part genetics and biology play from your perspective? So I try to explain it in easy words. It's much easier if I can draw something, but I cannot. So let's say, um, from my my model, I think, personally think, that currently the best evidence is uh, for a model, what I call a two-roots model. But, uh, yeah. So it has two roots. The one root is... Um, comes from genetic, epigenetic, neuropathological roots with, where people um, were born or, uh, yeah, born um, with, I would say, some sort of emotional hypersensitivity. Um, and this is, many people now think, okay, this is genetically driven, but it can also be uh, an effect of epigenetic problems, let's say uh, peripartal problems or micro lesions or something like that. These people are, let's say, and this is Marshall proposed this very early and we could show it and demonstrate that it's true. They are super sensitive for, uh, for the activation of, of emotions. The emotions are um, very intense and long-lasting and um, actually this itself alone does not cause uh, a borderline personality disorder this is one route then a second part uh, or, or component plays an important role this is what we call traumatic invalidation this is Marshall Linhan's term traumatic invalidation means that somebody with a very strong emotional sensitivity grows up in a family or a community which just cannot respond to these demands. So they uh, are not uh, trained <laughs> to really adequately respond to these emotional challenges. So they, maybe they treat them quite normal, like all the other kids, but then uh, a very super sensitive kid, which needs much more emotional validation, um, feels non-validated. So this non-validation is a misfitting between demands and uh, and um, yeah, what they get. Yeah. So and this this is a uh, we've started to do research now on on the mechanisms of traumatic invalidation. It's a very 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 strong uh, problem since it, the, it creates the feeling that in the individual that my Emotions, my emotions are not, are not correct. I cannot trust anybody. Uh, I cannot trust my own emotions and I cannot trust my, me, myself and others. I'm alone. I'm different than others. Uh, I'm, and then this results what we call alienation so that they really cannot rely on, uh, yeah, what is the most important thing? This means being part of, a, of human society or being part of a group. And these two, two things together, they result in what we called uh, a borderline personality disorder. And this is, you, we, I think it's important, this is an, a transactional process. So this means that um, uh, somebody with very uh, strong, let's say, emotional reactions causes uh, a lot of irritations in, in their parents. And sometimes... Um, without any intentions, uh, they just don't, cannot uh, yet react adequately, which in, again increases the behavioral patterns and, and, and. So these are vicious circuits and uh, often 
um, the parents are completely over, overwhelmed and uh, uh, by, by this challenge and they're simply not trained for that. So this is the one part. And the other part um, comes from severe real trauma to real means uh, physical traumatization and, and sexual traumatization. 50% report about sexual traumatization and others about um, physical traumatization. And again, this experience alone causes PTSD, but does not cause what we call complex PTSD. So again, here is the combination of a sexual traumatization and uh, traumatic invalidation. This means the impossible, uh, the inability to share this uh, traumatic experience with the caregivers. For example, what we experience all and over is, let's say, the kid has been abused by the grandfather and she tries to tell it to her mother and the mother just say, what are you telling about? So this is my father. He doesn't do things like that. So you are a little bitch. Uh, and it's, uh, you have crazy fantasies. I, I beat you up if you say it once again. So this is what happens, um, what we call a double hit problem. The, the, the one hit is the sexual traumatization. The second hit is the social traumatization. And those things together result in what we call complex PTSD. And now comes the real problem. What is the difference between borderline personality disorder and complex PTSD? And I can say, I think nobody in the world can tell you really science-based, evidence-based the difference. Um, if you look only at the diagnostic criteria, then what you have is uh, if you have, let's say, 50% of all borderline patients don't report sexual abuse. So this is an, another group. yeah, And, and the group with sexual abuse, um, they report, of course, um, the PTSD symptoms like um, intrusions, flashbacks, uh, hyperarousal and avoidance. And also identity uh, problems, what so-called identity problems, what we call now problems with emotion regulation, pro, uh, social interaction, and um, the extremely negative self-esteem. And these three, uh, uh, which are these three criteria, which are now the ICD-11 criteria, they exactly fit to the core problems of borderlines. So clinically, one can say that maybe you can discriminate so-called borderlines, uh, traumatized borderlines, since they are a little bit more complicated in the social interactions. They have very a, a lot of troubles to, to stay alone. They have they are more or less dependent on the social interaction, whereas the classic complex PTSD often are happy to be alone and um, uh, live a life more, uh, let's say, detached. Yeah. So, and. But you can also say it's a question of the uh, of, of age, uh, of severity, of uh, type and timing, and all this research hasn't been done yet. So there are, we have now the Central Institute under the leadership of Christian Schmal. We have a huge research project focusing on the impact of type and timing of trauma on the pathology, and it has a lot to do with different brain morphology let's say specific time and frequencies have a specific impact on the hippocampal area or the insula or other areas, which of course then have another impact on, uh, on the development of the pathology. So this is what is start to treatment. The problem is that it's very complicated to really have robust data since post hoc um, 
the our memories, the memories on uh, on let's say age of three, four, five are not very valid. Yeah? So you cannot really rely on this uh, this this data. So it gets complicated. And before we talk about treatment, I just wanted to ask you about potential preventative approaches. Thinking about this traumatic invalidation that you mentioned there, what do you think can be done or what is being done to prevent people from developing borderline personality disorder in the first place? Yeah, I would say um, the very first thing is uh, you when you talk about prevention, you always have to talk it's a primary, secondary uh, prevention. I, I think primary prevention is very complicated to give. This means a general education process on borderline is complicated to provide. But what I would say, um, uh, we know that it's a transactional process, and we know that the the, the quicker, the earlier, and the more concrete we help the parents um, to uh, learn skills, to learn uh, a more validating and more emotion focused uh, um, interaction processes. Uh, the better it is. So I think uh, the the approaches which, let's say, for instance, yeah. Uh, Al Frasetti uh, has, has uh, put on the table with his family interventions, um, which can provide uh, short-term uh, education programs in the early early time of uh, of the, the of the development of the disorder. Let's say so that clients at the age of 14, 15, parents of the age of 14, 15, they are involved in uh, included in the treatments. This should help a little bit. So I would say, yes, early interventions. And uh, uh, early primary interventions and taking the parents or the caregivers, uh, including them in, in the treatment programs, that, that would I say is, would be the next step. Yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. So tell us about your treatment. Yeah, the story is quickly told. So the problem in, in DBT was for years that it was an effective treatment. We knew that from many data, but uh, we figured out that uh, borderline patients with co-occurring PTSD didn't ma make much success. So they, they were a little bit better in their, let's say, emotion regulation and distress tolerance uh, capabilities, but uh, PTSD simply didn't disappear. And this makes total sense since uh, uh, these are trauma-specific problems, which are really related to the trauma memory. And if you don't directly target the trauma memory, uh, nothing happens. So... This was in, in the, let's say, in the beginning of the 20s when, when Marsha, uh, we were sitting together with Marsha and said, okay, there's a strong need now to improve the treatment and to develop um, new interventions. And then there were two approaches. The one said, okay, we take standard DVT and add a protocol of Ednafoa, what was called prolonged exposure. Uh, Melanie Hornet is this approach, and I started with that, but then I saw now this is not sufficient. We we have to be much more um, specific to the uh, requirements of the disorder, and uh, we have to learn on very specific emotions which are uh, strongly related to trauma. In early trauma, this is uh, we learned a lot on guilt, the mechanism of guilt as a coping mechanism against powerlessness. We learned a lot of disgust, since uh, disgust is a central problem in, in almost everybody who has been uh, traumatized very early. Uh, and this disgust becomes part of a, of, a, of the self-system. So they feel themselves disgusted. 
um, and then shame, which is closely related to, to disgust. Uh, and then this results in assumptions like I'm dirty or everybody sees it, everybody smells it. Uh, I cannot go out on the streets and people know what happened and so on. So this, um, um, on the first perspective, uh, weird uh, uh, um, assumptions make total sense if you uh, understand the mechanism of the coping strategies and survival strategies, the mental surviving strategies of a sexual abused child. And then you come up with, we have to understand guilt, shame, disgust, self-contempt. Um, and we have to design a treatment which specifically not only focus on um, improvement of uh, reduction of intrusions and flashbacks, frequency and intrusion, which is easily be done if you um, provide uh, exposure treatment. Um, but we also have to target uh, the extremely negative self-concept. Uh, we have to target uh, the problems with social interaction. We have to target the body concepts. And we have also to understand how can we uh, provide uh, exposure in clients who are uh, prone to severe dissociative features. And since dissociation is an automatized process, which is blunting amygdala and hippocampus, and we have to know and to teach the therapists what they can do to block the dissociation during the exposure, since otherwise the brain doesn't learn. <laughs> And this this was the advantages of a group since we did a lot of neurocognitive uh, studies on dissociation and we learned how to block dissociation. And uh, so we learned how, how we can apply, um, yeah, exactly targeted exposure uh, in under non-dissociative conditions. And the last thing what we just uh, brought in now is that we learned a lot uh, how to change what we call a uh, let's say dysfunctional self-concept. You not only have to let's say uh, help the clients to question their own assumption, but you have to help the clients to uh, develop a new uh, point of uh, new perspective towards themselves. And there, Marsha has already set the grains for it. She she developed the concept what she called it wise mind. And wise mind is the old Buddhistic concept, including loving kindness, compassion, joy for others, and serenity. And we strengthen this component in DBT and uh, treat uh, uh, from the very beginning. Our, our patients train up an imago of this wise mind, which we then can use also during the exposure technique. So as you see, it, uh, it's a multi-component, closely interwoven design. It's uh, based on a self-help manual with about 350 pages. So it's uh, it's more than a classic uh, therapist-guided treatment. So it's a blended treatment. So therapist clients work about 30 minutes per day with audio tapes and uh, and handouts and worksheets. And therapists work for one hour uh, per week. And so this blended <laughs> treatment, I hope. Uh, it is, um, yeah, it's mainly focused that and helps uh, to develop, uh, let's say, not only a better self-esteem, but also a self-efficiency so that clients learn that they don't depend only on the mercy of the therapist, but they are capable uh, people who really can do a lot of that, that work for themselves. And tell us about how you studied this. 
and over what period that sounds like a really intensive treatment over what period have your studies gone yeah so uh, of course when you develop this treatment we started in 2003 so and uh, the first problem was that we were in the beginning uh, we were convinced that you cannot uh, target a trauma in a patient who's chronically suicidal self-harming highly dissociative and then uh, it was just something when I talked to Marsha and said, Marsha, what could we do? And she said, hey, they have to learn skills uh, before that you can target the, tri- uh, the trauma. And then I said, OK, what to do with those clients who cut themselves in order to reduce their flashbacks? And then both of us sit together and said, OK, maybe what, what, what are our data? So that was a very one of the nice talks with her. We said, are we really sure this is what we are? It's written, but do we have data for that? And then I said, okay, let's try it out. And I had the big advantage that in Germany we have this this unit. So we have residential units. Yeah? A residential unit is a three-month residential treatment. It's an open ward where people can apply for. And then uh, insurance companies pay since we could show that, that it's working and they have good data. So they pay for 12 weeks of residential treatment. And we have highly trained staff so uh, nurses know how to handle uh, suicidal acts and they know how to handle self-harm and then we said okay just let's try it out let's let's start with an exposure-based treatment um, and really taking everybody from the very beginning without a stage one phase and uh, and then we did it under residential conditions and we figured out that uh, our our assumptions were wrong so we did not have any uh, uh, and uh, let's say any suicide attempts, uh, we didn't have more. We didn't have more self-harm e- events. So, and we very carefully uh, 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 analyzed our data, and we, we, that's also published. Meanwhile, there was no increase, not even in suicidal threats or something like that. And then we learned, okay, this treatment seems to be quite safe. And the, the other thing is that we really did individual analysis and figured out that, that not one patient got worse, even that we had really clear exposure-based uh, uh, treatment and everybody was on exposure after the third week of treatment. And we didn't have one one case where uh, these uh, this problems exacerbated what we all assumed. And then we said, okay, now that we know that the three months residential treatment is safe and uh, and effective, we did an RCT on compared our residential treatment to a um, treatment as usual waitlist. This is not a very strong design, but it showed that at least we didn't harm and we uh, we could do it and patients accepted it and we had a very strong effect size a pre post effect size and also between group effect size of 1.4 um so in the caps so maybe you're familiar with uh, this effect size assessment so you usually say okay and if and, and you have you have a treatment so between 0.3 and point Point six, it's mediocre. Everything that is higher than point eight is, is strong, and the uh, and the treatment effect of one point four, you can say this is extremely strong, heavy, a good good working treatment. And then we decided, okay, now let's let's take the same design, uh, no, the same content, and bring it um, and design it as an outpatient treatment. So uh, this means we. We took all the contents uh, in individual therapy and uh, manualized it in a way that an, one single therapist can provide the treatment in 40 
five sessions uh, without a group, only an individual therapist, 45 sessions. And uh, we did also our, our pre-studies and figured out that it seemed to work. And then we tested it in a large RCT with uh, around about 200 clients and tested it uh, in a multi-center trial in Germany against um, the pederastics treatment. This is cognitive processing therapy. Pro cognitive processing therapy is currently one of the best established uh, treatments for, yes, let's say, severe traumatized uh, clients in the U.S. And uh, it's mainly cognitive. So we choose this treatment since we said, okay, then we can compare DVD-PTSD as an exposure-based treatment versus a strong cognitive treatment. And um, one of the reasons was that there was this rumor that the more cognitive treatments are better tolerable and they are emotional and not so distressing. And we thought, okay, let's take, take a really fair uh, comparison. We asked Pederesic, who is the treatment developer, whether she wants to supervise, the uh, gets the PI of this treatment arm. She trained uh, all, the, all, the, all the therapists. She supervised the group. So... I think this was quite fair since uh, usually if you compare a, a, a treatment which uh, designed by the developer to another one, then you always have your developer bias. So there were the two developers, me and, and Patty uh, together running the treatment. And uh, yeah, and our the results we found are very, very convincing. So first of all, both treatments work um, and the effect size of pederastic treatments is about one. Uh, the effect size of DVD-PTSD is, again, 1.4 or 1.45. And we have significant improve, uh, superior, superiority of the DVD-PTSD treatment in all belongings. So, um, yeah, so we were happy about that. Of course, this has to be replicated and uh, this is a one shot. But now, <clears throat> at least we, we can show that it works and uh, our dropout rates um, oh yeah, exactly what it says. And we, the, our inclusion criteria, those times where clients suffering from the sequelae of childhood sexual abuse plus minimum three borderline criteria, including emotion dysregulation, those times we did not have an ICD-11 diagnosis, so we could not have an assessment. We did a sub-analysis on these 100 patients who uh, suffered from full-blown borderline, this means five and more criteria, and we, we figured out the same results. That's, that's just published in, in Journal of Consulting, uh, and, uh, and uh, we, we, we got the same effect sizes. So actually, um, it works for, for both, for classic complex PTSD and for severe borderline patients with PTSD. So yes, that's, that's the situation. You know, I'm 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 persuaded, having listened to you speak for the last half an hour, <laughs> that there's a huge amount of content here that is very relevant to people, both people working with clients at the front line, but also yeah. other researchers. So, um, why should you listen to the talk? Yeah, why should they come along? So I would say, if you are a clinician, if you're working with borderline patients. You should, you should listen to this talk since every second patient you're treating is suffering from complex PTSD. And 
the, the currently only evidence-based treatment is DVD-PTSD, which has a long-lasting development phase, yes, but it has now very strong data. And it's sure that you cannot apply the treatment, but you know whether you would run a course later. So it's, this uh, treatment can be learned in four days. Um, if you are a behavioral therapist and if you ha have at least a little bit an idea of basics and principles of DBT, it takes you four days. You get a manual and in four days you can start to treat to, to work with your clients. And I think your clients are worth it. That's all. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you.